Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for March 15th through 21st, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, sections 27 through 28. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Oh, this is going to be wonderful. Looking forward to it. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. Eight minutes, 24 seconds. <laughs> okay. Uh, daily reading? One minute, 12 seconds. Okay, everybody, you saw the numbers. You can do this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, not only yes. Can you do this? Eight minutes, 24 seconds. That's a cooking video on YouTube. Here's the plan for this week. If you have not already, now is the week to get into some of those amazing extra resources like the Come Follow Me resources, like the Restoration and Church History section of your Gospel Library app. We've showed you and we continue to use all sorts of great resources on there. Dig in, read the Saints book this week. Check out the Doctrine and Covenants Central and the different resources and articles they have there. Set a goal each day of what extra do you wanna bring into your study that will help you get more out of it? Well, I guess one of them would be listening to our show. And if you wanna do it section by section, we've got time codes right here to help you out. Nicely done. And now let's jump into section 27. We get a little bit of the history behind section 27. This is from the Institute Manual. Once again, to be clear, this is the 2018 Institute Manual. It says, Before the Prophet Joseph Smith could return to Colesville, New York, Newell and Sally Knight went to visit him and his wife, Emma, in Harmony, Pennsylvania, in August 1830. Because of persecution from the mob in June, neither Sally Knight nor Emma Smith had been confirmed members of the church and given the gift of the Holy Ghost. Before the Knights returned home, the couples decided to partake of the sacrament together and perform the confirmations. Joseph wrote, I set out to go to procure some wine for the occasion, but had gone only a short distance when I was met by a heavenly messenger. And this messenger communicated the revelation that's now recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 27. Let's take a look, starting at verse 1. Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. For behold, I say unto you, that it mattereth not what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory." Remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you, that you shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Wherefore, you shall partake of none, except it is made new among you. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth." Now, often when we do a Sunday school class on this particular section, we'll talk about the fact that it doesn't matter what you eat or drink as long as it's with an eye single to the glory of God. But there's more to the story than that. I think if you look over the history of the church since the Restoration, that the administration of the sacrament has gone through several revisions over time. 
there's a real good summarization of a lot of these revisions in the church history topics under sacrament meetings. We've talked about this section of the Gospel Library before, and I'm going to read just a section of the article. There's even more in the article, and I encourage you to read it. It says, As Joseph went to procure wine for use in administering the sacrament at a meeting in August 1830, he was met by a heavenly messenger and instructed to use only wine made locally by church members for the sacrament. The Lord further taught in this revelation that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when you partake of the sacrament, if it so be that you do it with an eye single to my glory. In keeping with this revelation, early saints used wine they had made for the ordinance. For example, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, the wife of Bishop Newell K. Whitney, offered her homemade red currant wine for the sacrament in Kirtland. Sacramental wine was increasingly replaced with water over the course of the 19th century. And I would add as a side note that the church decided to exclusively use water in 1912. Back to the article. The amount of bread used for sacramental services has also varied over time. On special occasions, such as temple dedications during the 19th century, saints sometimes ate bread and drank wine or water until they were full, as described in 3 Nephi. Nancy Naomi Alexander Tracy recollected how, in celebration of the Kirtland Temple dedication, the elders went from house to house blessing the saints and administering the sacrament. Feasts were given. Three families joined together and held one at our house. We baked a lot of bread. In the early church, adult men typically blessed the sacrament and women provided bread, wine, and table linens. In the 1870s, Church leaders began ordaining teenage boys to offices in the Aaronic priesthood, and young teachers and deacons were assigned the task of distributing the sacramental emblems to the congregation. Bishopric members and other adult priesthood holders continued to officiate at the sacrament table until the early 1900s when young priests, in addition to adult priesthood holders, began blessing the bread and water. In 1950, Church leaders recommended that teachers be given the responsibility of preparing the sacrament table. Starting in 1911 for sanitary purposes, the common cup of wine or water previously passed throughout the congregation began to be replaced with tiny individual sacrament cups. In 1946, concerned that the tradition of providing sermons and musical numbers simultaneous with the sacramental service was disruptive, the First Presidency instructed church members to observe a reverent, meditative silence during the ordinance. And this is such a fascinating topic. And I'll have to admit, up until this year, I never considered the history of the sacrament service as being particularly interesting. But I think my interest in it really started when we had to shut things down because of COVID restrictions. And we began talking about and teaching about and studying about the sacrament even more in our home. And it had led me to an interesting article on the church's website in the history section. And so we've linked some various articles here. John has one. We've got two of them here from Justin R. Bray, who is a church history specialist. One of them is an article in the BYU Religious Studies, All Progressive Wards Are Buying, the Individual Sacrament Cup. This is by Justin R. Bray. We'll have a link in the description. But the one that I read that is very similar, but this one even has a picture of the common cup as well as the 
early metal versions of the sacrament tray cups. It's called the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the Influenza Epidemic of 1918. It's interesting to look at how the Lord actually prepared the church to be ready for that when that influenza epidemic came. We were already using alternatives to the common cup. We'll have a link there. There's also an article on the changing forms of the Latter-day Saint sacrament. That's a much longer one that goes through not only ancient sources, but also modern sources. And that's at The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. Yeah, and that article is by Hugo A. Perego. Great stuff. Excellent. And the last one we're going to recommend is a two-parter. It was in the Enzyme in 1992 the January and the February issues. It's the Restoration of the Sacrament by Richard Lloyd Anderson. Lots of information in there too. So if you want to really dig into your understanding of the sacrament and how our understanding and practice of it has progressed over time, check those out. And if any of our viewers might be old enough to have remembered musical numbers during the passing of the sacrament, let us know in the comments. I'm really interested in that. That, of course, predates Jay and I, but I was fascinated to see that that had been something that was changed less than 100 years ago. And one more thing I would just tease in the article on the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the influenza epidemic. At the end of it, with them no longer using the common cup, the article states, and this is in part quoting George Q. Cannon, no longer do church members need to worry about the floating red mustache in the sacrament cup or, quote, the fumes of tobacco in the water close quote. I mean, do you just think about that common cup being passed around? And, you know, the idea is that we're thinking more about the Savior than worrying about who's brushed their teeth. Well, okay, but think about this for a minute. For those who may not be familiar, one of the things that would be advantageous as far as using wine for a common cup distribution would be that alcohol is a natural disinfectant. Water, you don't have that. Yeah, that's fair, too. Moving on, I wanted to include a quote from the Institute Manual from then-Elder Dallin H. Oaks. This is from the October 2008 General Conference. He sums up the importance of the sacrament this way. He says, quote, The ordinance of the sacrament makes the sacrament meeting the most sacred and important meeting in the church. It is the only Sabbath meeting the entire family can attend together. During sacrament meeting, and especially during the sacrament service, We should concentrate on worship and refrain from all other activities, especially from behavior that could interfere with the worship of others. Sacrament meeting is not a time for reading books or magazines. Young people, it is not a time for whispered conversations on cell phones or for texting persons at other locations. When we partake of the sacrament, we make a sacred covenant that we will always remember the Savior. How sad to see persons obviously violating that covenant in the very meeting where they are making it, end quote. Wow. Something very important to remember. That's a good conviction. Well, moving on with verses 5 through 14 in section 27, the Lord talks about who he will, he uses the phrase, drink the wine with. In verse 5, he says, Behold, this is wisdom in me, wherefore marvel not. For the hour cometh that I will drink the fruit of the vine with you on the earth and with. And here we have a list of people and a list of authorities or keys, responsibilities. In verse 5, he says, Moroni, who has the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. 
In verse 6, Elias, the keys of bringing to pass the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began concerning the last days. In verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist, son of Zacharias, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron. In verse 9, we have Elijah, who has the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, some of these are kind of familiar to us, maybe as we've studied, but this is all brand new to them. He goes on to list Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham in verse 10. And then Michael or Adam, the father of all in verse 11. But then what keys were given to Joseph Smith in verses 12 and 13? And also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and a special witnesses of my name and bear the keys of your ministry and of the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. And then finally, in verse 14, Jesus will drink the wine with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. And that, friends, is hopefully you and me. It's all of us who seek Jesus the Christ. To confirm that very conclusion, in the Institute Manual, we have a quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie from his book, The Promised Messiah, The First Coming of Christ. He says, quote, Every faithful person in the whole history of the world, every person who has so lived as to merit eternal life in the kingdom of the Father, will be in attendance and will partake with the Lord of the sacrament. End quote. That's a beautiful image. Something to aspire to. Absolutely. In verses 15 through 18, here we have counsel that will help us to be worthy to qualify for the Lord's blessings, including the blessing of attending the sacrament meeting mentioned in those previous verses. In verse 15, Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice, and gird up your loins, and take upon you my whole armor, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all, that ye may be able to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of my spirit, which I will pour out upon you, and my word which I will reveal unto you, and be agreed as touching all things whatsoever ye ask of me, and be faithful until I come. And ye shall be caught up, that where I am ye shall be also. Amen. Wow. I always have loved the armor of God imagery. Yeah. But what's neat to think about with this is that we've got things that we do, and we've got blessings for doing it as we look over that armor. 
we've got some quotes that will help to expand that a little bit more. Right. The first one is from the Institute Manual. This is a commonly quoted one from President Harold B. Lee from a BYU speech on November 9th, 1954, where he talks about some of the symbolism in this armor. He says, quote, We have the four parts of the body that the Apostle Paul said or saw to be the most vulnerable to the powers of darkness, the loins, typifying virtue, chastity, the heart, typifying our conduct, our feet, our goals or objectives in life, and finally, our head, our thoughts, end quote. Yeah. Here's another one used in the Come, Follow Me manual and many others. I really like this image because there's different ways we think of when we try to picture the armor. Often it's, it's sometimes it's medieval, sometimes it's Roman armor. But I really liked this idea from President M. Russell Ballard. He said, I like to think of this spiritual armor not as a solid piece of metal molded to fit the body, but more like chainmail. Chainmail consists of dozens of tiny pieces of steel fastened together to allow the user greater flexibility without losing protection. I say that because it has been my experience that there is not one great and grand thing we can do to arm ourselves spiritually. True spiritual power lies in numerous smaller acts woven together in a fabric of spiritual fortification that protects and shields from all evil. That's from an article called Be Strong in the Lord from the July 2004 Enzyme. You know, that goes along with the notion that there isn't one thing that we can do in this life to instantly change from one being to another. It's about what we become. Yeah. And this notion of adding little rings together over time to protect yourself. It's similar to the concept of adding one drop of oil to your lamp mm -hmm. right. to be ready for the wedding feast. Yeah. And remembering, I mean, we don't want to take this too literally. It's meant to be metaphorical, but remember who's strengthening these rings, whose power is contained in that idea of chainmail. It's a powerful image. Now, one quote that I really like, but I really couldn't shorten it down because it's kind of a long talk. So I'm just going to point you in the direction of it. Elder N. Eldon Tanner in the 1979 April General Conference had a talk called Put on the Whole Armor of God. Now, let me just summarize some of the things he's saying, and I'll reference the talk in the description. He gives a great comparison between the armor of God and the armor of the world in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was armored with the grand armor of the world. He had size, he had strength, and he was brash and dominating. The world celebrates this kind of power, and he felt secure in it. David came to him, really only wearing the armor of God. David said, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. That's referencing 1 Samuel 17, 25. And you may remember how that story ended. What did it take to take down what the world feels is powerful, what the world's armor is, and compare that to the strength and power that God's armor gives? Lots of good extra study ideas for section 27. So let's move on to section 28. And welcome to section 28. Glad to have you here. So we introduce a new character here. His name is Hiram Page. 
So who is Hiram Page? Well, he's David Whitmer's brother-in-law. He married David's sister Catherine. But he's also one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And the question that's posed here is, who has authority to receive revelation for the entire church? To tell this story, I'm going to take a little excerpt from Saints, Volume 1, Chapter 9. Chapter 9 would be a really good chapter if you're going to just read one chapter of Saints for the time period that we're talking about now. It says, Later that summer, and this is August 1830, Joseph and Emma paid off their farm with the help of friends and moved to Fayette so Joseph could devote more time to the church. After they arrived, however, they learned that Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses and a teacher in the Aaronic Priesthood, had started to seek revelations for the church through what he thought was a seer stone. Many saints, including Oliver and some members of the Whitmer family, believed these revelations were from God. Joseph knew he was facing a crisis. Hiram's revelations mimicked the language of Scripture. They spoke of the establishment of Zion and the organization of the church, but at times, they contradicted the New Testament and truths the Lord had revealed through Joseph. Unsure of what to do, Joseph stayed up praying one night, pleading for guidance. He had experienced opposition before, but not from his friends. If he acted too forcefully against Hiram's revelations, he could offend those who believed in them or discourage faithful saints from seeking revelation on their own. But if he did not condemn the false revelations... They could undermine the authority of the Lord's word and divide the saints. After many sleepless hours, Joseph received a revelation directed to Oliver. And that brings us to section 28. So let's dive in. Verse 1. Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things whatsoever thou shalt teach them by the Comforter, concerning the revelations and commandments which I have given. But behold... Verily, verily, I say unto thee, No one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses, and thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron, to decide faithfully the commandments and revelations, to declare faithfully the commandments and the revelations with power and authority unto the church." Now, this isn't the first time the Lord has made comparisons with Oliver Cowdery and Aaron and Joseph Smith and Moses. We've talked about that in past episodes. That's true. So just to make sure we're clear, the president of the church is the only person who can receive revelation for the whole church. And that's the key doctrine that we want to make sure we take away from these verses. Now, in verses four and five, if... Oliver is inspired by the Holy Ghost to speak or teach, he may, but he may not write by wisdom. To better understand the relationship that Oliver has as he's trying to understand his place in the church, let me give a little bit of background to help set the stage for the coming verses. Not long before the Lord revealed the truths that are now recorded in this section 28, Oliver Cowdery did something that showed that he did not yet fully understand the differences between his responsibilities in the church and Joseph Smith's responsibility as president of the church. Now, the upcoming information you can find in the Joseph Smith's Revelations, a Doctrine and Covenants study companion from the Joseph Smith Papers, whew, that's quite a title, 
That's in your Gospel Library app. We've talked about it before. It says Joseph Smith was living in Harmony, Pennsylvania, when he received a letter from Oliver Cowdery, who was in Fayette, New York, about 100 miles away. Oliver said he had discovered an error in the revelation we now call Doctrine and Covenants, Section 20. According to Joseph Smith's history, Cowdery objected to the requirement that candidates for baptism truly manifest by their works that they have received the gift of Christ unto the remission of their sins. And he wrote to Joseph Smith, I command you in the name of God to erase those words that no priestcraft be amongst us. In response, Joseph Smith traveled from Harmony, Pennsylvania to Fayette, New York to persuade Cowdery and the Whitmers that they were mistaken. According to Joseph Smith's later account, it was not without both labor and perseverance that he could prevail with any of them to reason calmly on the subject. Finally, with support from Christian Whitmer, Joseph Smith convinced Cowdery and the Whitmer family that they had been in error and that the sentence in dispute was in accordance of the rest of the commandment. Struggles with authority. It's very important to establish that and establish it clearly. And certainly the Lord has just done that in these first few verses. And he cements it even further in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 6. And thou shalt not command him who is at thy head and at the head of the church. For I have given him the keys of the mysteries and the revelations which are sealed until I shall appoint unto them another in his stead. And remember, this is being given to Oliver Cowdery. And that previous piece of history that we gave I think really helps to shine some light on why this is so important for Oliver and the others to understand. This will all be done in order. And speaking of order, there was a quote that I found in the Institute Manual from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks. This is a BYU devotional from September 29, 1981. He says, quote, Our Heavenly Father's house is a house of order where his servants are commanded to act in the office in which they are appointed. This principle applies to revelation. Only the president of the church receives revelation to guide the entire church. Only the stake president receives revelation for the special guidance of the stake. The person who receives revelation for the ward is the bishop. For a family, it is the priesthood leadership of the family. Leaders receive revelation for their own stewardships. Individuals can receive revelation to guide their own lives. But when one person purports to receive revelation for another person outside his or her stewardship, such as a church member who claims to have revelation to guide the entire church, or a person who claims to have a revelation to guide another person over whom he or she has no presiding authority according to the order of the church, you can be sure that such revelations are not from the Lord. End quote. So now in verse 8, we are looking at special responsibilities that Oliver is being given. In verse 8, it says, Now behold, I say unto you, that you shall go unto the Lamanites and preach my gospel unto them. And inasmuch as they receive thy teachings, thou shalt cause my church to be established among them. And thou shalt have revelations, but write them not by way of commandment. Going on in verse 9, And now behold, I say unto you, that it is not revealed, and no man knoweth where the city of Zion shall be built. But it shall be given hereafter, 
Behold, I say unto you, that it shall be on the borders by the Lamanites. That's an exciting tease. Now, this was a really big topic among members of the church at that time. And there's some speculation to say that part of the false revelations that Hiram Page was receiving was the location of Zion. Mm. That was something that they were excited about. And it's kind of hinted at in this verse. Well, and if the Lord says it shall be given hereafter, I think along with that comes if you are faithful. Right. In other words, here's what you can have if you continue moving forward the way you're moving forward and preparing. Now, in verses 11 through 13, remember now the false revelations that Hiram Page presented to some members of the church. Discover what the Lord directed Oliver Cowdery to do to help resolve the difficulty. In verse 11, And again, thou shalt take thy brother, Hiram Page, between him and thee alone, and tell him that those things which he hath written from that stone are not of me and that Satan deceiveth him. For behold, these things have not been appointed unto him, neither shall anything be appointed unto any of this church contrary to the church covenants. For all things must be done in order and by common consent in the church by the prayer of faith. Now, I find this really interesting. This was not a revelation to Hiram Page. Right. This was not a revelation to Joseph Smith for him to use against Hiram Page. Right. This was a revelation to Oliver Cowdery, including instructions to Oliver to take Hiram aside, just the two of them, and talk about this. And it's probably important, too, for Oliver to testify of the truthfulness of this, because, again, so much of this is addressed to him. That's right. Well, and he was one who had believed the revelations from Hiram. Right. And so it was very important for him to have this opportunity. It just shows great wisdom in the Lord, I think. And order. From the Institute Manual, there's a quote from President James E. Faust. This comes from the April 1996 General Conference. He says, quote, Some have claimed higher spiritual gifts or authority outside the established priesthood authority of the church. They say that they believe in the principles and ordinances of the gospel and accept the president of the church as the legal administrator thereof, but claim they have a higher order, which the president does not have. This is often done to justify an activity which is not in accordance with the doctrines of the church. There can be no higher order, however, because the president of the church both holds and exercises all of the keys of the kingdom of God on earth. The Lord has said of the president of the church that none else shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations except it be through him. Continuing revelation and leadership for the church come through the president of the church, and he will never mislead the saints. End quote. Amen. Verses 15 through 16, we have the final counsel to Oliver. Verse 15. And it shall be given thee from the time thou shalt go until the time thou shalt return what thou shalt do. And thou must open thy mouth at all times, declaring my gospel with the sound of rejoicing. Amen. And I think one of the things I love about that final phrase is it's not just what he needs to do to serve, but at least the way I read it, it's the attitude with which you need to serve. 
including talking to Hiram Page about this revelation. And to do it with the sound of rejoicing, to preach the gospel to the Lamanites with the sound of rejoicing, to serve in the gospel with the sound of rejoicing. Now, after Joseph Smith had received this revelation, he convened a conference and set the church in order. At the conference, Brother Page, as well as the whole church who were present, renounced the said stone and all things connected therewith. In other words, Joseph set the church in order order. Well, what an exciting section of the Doctrine and Covenants to study. And it comes at a very interesting time. We're almost coming to the April General Conference for 2021. It'll be exciting to hear what new revelations have been given to our president and to the Quorum of the Twelve. And we should study them. Yeah. With the sound of rejoicing. Yeah, with the sound of rejoicing. And we will continue to study the Doctrine and Covenants next week with the sound of rejoicing. And we'll look forward to seeing you then. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.